This is Michael, you're listening to Models of Masters, and I'm so grateful you're here. I'm breaking down personal stories, learned wisdom, and pieces of insight I hope can help you along your journey. Head over to my website, michaelbecker.org, for much more. And with that, let's get right into the show. today's episode, I brought on Mike Kading, who is the CEO of Norhart, which is a property development and apartment rental company based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, having started from, from very humble beginnings to now looking at a valuation of his firm north of $200 million. Mike's vision is incredibly cause-based, which resonates deeply with the mission of this show and my personal values. And Mike and his team are working to solve America's housing shortage by providing affordable housing and doing so through technologies, efficiencies, and systems that are consolidating costs and revolutionizing other industries. He has built a vertically integrated property development company where he houses construction, property management, and every other function that comprises the firm under one roof which is Norhart. So I invite you to join us in this episode as we dive deeper into Mike's story and hear more about his innovative approach to property management. We'll explore how he's overcoming challenges in the industry like rising interest rates. We'll look at how he built a strong company culture and how he creates sustainable, high-quality housing solutions that benefit individuals and communities alike. Mike, where I would perhaps like to start this conversation is diving right into your business model at Norhart and some of the systems or mechanisms or components that make you guys unique in terms of how you deliver value to the marketplace. Mm. So can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. You know, at a high level, we design, build, and rent apartments. And we're really about solving the cost of that. And so we're focused right now in driving down those costs. We're already achieving about a 20 to 30% reduction. And we believe we can reach a 50% reduction in those construction costs. But imagine what that means someday. I mean, someday your rent could be half. Or your mortgage payment could be half. So ultimately, we're fighting to solve America's housing affordability crisis. And so there's a lot of things that we go in to do that. One of the simple things is if you look at other industries like manufacturing, they've improved labor productivity by 760% over the past 60 years. Agriculture has improved by 1,500%. Yeah. Do you have a guess of what construction has done? Has it gone up? <laughs> no, but it's <laughs> remained flat. It's just 10%. Yeah. It's been awful, yeah. right? It's, not, it's basically not improved at all in the past 60 years. The way we used to do it is still the way we do it today. And so... At a high level, we're applying the technologies and techniques of these other industries and bringing it to construction. Mm. Give you some sense of that. The world of construction is very segmented. The owner is typically a different company than your developer, your general contractor coordinating construction from your subs, your plumbers, right. electrician, HVAC. Yeah. And imagine for a moment if a construction company were to produce cars. You'd have a different company installing the windshield, a different company installing the door, and a different company installing the wheel. And of course, the wheel company would come and call you up and say, hey, I'm so sorry, 
who we've gotten delayed another project we won't be out there for the next two weeks and your line would be shut down and then of course when they did come they would be irate because they can only work on one car at a time or they want an entire fleet so the world of manufacturing looks at us and says you guys are crazy and they're right but that's the way things have been done and so that's the start of some of those changes but there's a lot of techniques that we can apply after doing some of that fundamental change so on the front end of your of your business model or of your strategy, right? In terms of acquisition of either the land or the properties that you buy, what are some of the things that you look for? Or what does that, that process look like? Yeah, so right now, all of our properties, we build from the ground up. So you can kind of think about us as dirt to key, right? And so for the land we look for, um, you know, one of the misconceptions with uh, trying to solve America's housing affordability crisis is that, does that mean you provide poor housing. In fact, it's almost the opposite for us. We're providing some of the nicest properties in our state. Think mm -hmm. restaurant, coffee shop, pool, uh, penthouse suites, right? We're not the tradition. We're not, we're not at all called affordable housing. We're just trying to solve the crisis. So when we look for land, then we look for some of the nicer properties in the state. So you think about commercial zoning nearby. Like, do you have a whole armada of places you can go get food just to walk across the street? Um, our newest property, there's a brand new transit line called the Golden Line that will be stopping right at our front door. That was a consideration. Um, new and upcoming neighborhoods is another thing we look at. Is this a space, a place that's it's growing? We also look at the fund fundamentals, things like rents and making sure that the financials make sense. But that, that's kind of a, a broad a brush of what we look for. Okay. And talk to me a little bit, if you would, about what your portfolio looks like currently, number of doors, number of units, and what city or cities are you, do you own property in? Yeah, so right now we're primarily in the state of Minnesota, where we are in the Twin Cities for our properties. We have approaching about 1,000 units currently, but we're building at about 500 units per year. And so if you look at our history, it's been a very much a hockey stick kind of growth. We've been doubling almost every year. Uh, we also have manufacturing facilities in Wisconsin. We're expanding our multifamily apartments into Texas right now. We're also looking at expanding manufacturing capability into Mexico, and about 15% of our staff are international. Awesome. So obviously the kind of the key piece of what you do and certainly the, the core aspect of your messaging is this idea of helping to solve America's uh, housing affordability crisis. What are some of the ways that you guys do that specifically when it comes to how the numbers flow um, and the money management within the company? You can go into as much or as little detail as you want around that. I'm just curious on um, how you make that work for your for your end consumer to actually bring that to life. Yeah, there's a whole world there we could dig into. You know, for a, any given project, let's look at our most recent one. That might be a $100 million project. So it's worth okay. about $100 million. That's about what other developers, it would cost them to build it. Okay. Uh, our uh, costs come in at around $70 million for that project. A bank will typically fund 75% or $75 million. So this is what's enabled such accelerated growth is that most developers have to bring cash equity to the table. And there's an element that we have to do that too. But foundationally, with each project we do, we're typically generating cash rather than requiring it because we've solved or working to solve the core problem, which is the construction cost. Now, okay. from a resident's perspective, one thing I often get pushback on is, is Mike, your, uh, your rents, they aren't, uh, they aren't less expensive than other developments. Yeah. And that's intentional. But why? Why, if we're trying to solve affordability, why are our rents the same as other people? Well, the reason is this. If we were to lower our rents by 20 to 30%, which we could, that means we'd have a few thousand people that had more affordable housing. That's great. We solved it for them. But that's not our goal. Our goal is to solve it nationwide. 
So what are we doing? We're taking that cash, that capital, and putting it into the system that builds housing. Got it. Elon Musk talks about how it's hard to produce a car, but it is 10 to 100 to 1,000 times harder to produce the system that mm. builds cars. And it's so true. So, so we're true. building out that system. And what we're working to do over the next 60, or sorry, the next decade mm -hmm. is to scale up to produce 192,000 units under management with a 60,000 unit per year pace. Now at that point, we're starting to provide enough units to the marketplace that we're impacting the price, right? With enough supply, prices come down. And here's the magic. We're not just lowering prices for our own residents, we're lowering it for everyone nationwide. And right. That's how we're working to solve the crisis. Right, right, yeah, and when obviously, when prices go down for especially high quality properties in a decent or good area, it forces others to take a good hard look and possibly to follow suit. That, that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Um, I know that with a lot of development firms, with the units that they either build or buy under management, they have a similar look and feel or a similar theme to a lot of their buildings. And, you know, you walk into the apartments that they own and uh, they, they, the energy, the environment, the, the, the aura looks and feels the same. You can tell it's the same property, uh, property owner who, who manages those. Is there any look, feel, theme that you guys try to stick to when building your properties? Or is it just basically based on the area? Um, so traditionally, it's been a little bit more based upon the area. In fact, in the world of multifamily, they're mm -hmm. branded with everyone brands it with different names. And so maybe it has a similar look and feel, but you may not know it's the same company. You might be like, this is similar to that one, but you don't know really the name there because they brand it with different names, at least in our in our part of the, the country. And so one of the key things we're doing differently now <clears throat> is if you think about hotels, they don't brand each hotel separately. It's Hyatt or it's Marriott, right? It's all the same brand. And so now we're starting to have a very consistent look and feel in branding to the buildings. And mm -hmm. so starting with our, our newest products now, they're all Norhart buildings. So it's Norhart Oakdale or Norhart Cottage Grove uh, based okay. on the city. And yeah. then, then you know the experience you get there. And then within that, we have what uh, we call different series. So series one, series two, series three, which is the different like quality levels. If you want really nice granite countertops, stainless steel appliances, very nice property, that's just a series one. You go up to series three, now you're talking restaurant, coffee shop, uh, spa, pools, um, rooftop patio and grills, that sort of thing that just... Uh, give you a higher level experience. So it's all going to be under one brand. You can kind of pick which which category is best fitting for you. Got it. Okay. So you you don't just do residential. You do commercial as well. Then it's it's multi, it's apartments. And so is apartments commercial or residential? People debate that back and forth. Right. Yeah. Right in the middle. We, we have a restaurant on the first floor of of my high rise here in in Phoenix. So yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, you know, as as we speak, there is a giant crane out this window. You can't see it on camera. Um, and then there's another just up the street and then behind me, which is downtown, there is at least three or four within view. Construction is just crazy here in the Phoenix market, as you know. Um, I'm curious, what is the, what's the plan and what is, what does the market look like in Minnesota? Well, what's interesting, probably what's most interesting is how the market is changing right now. Uh, the world of apartments and even single family homes is this way, but I know apartments specifically, Last quarter, we had the most number of apartments under construction in as far back as I have numbers for. It's exciting, right? We're getting more supply to the market. But you look at this quarter, and that new construction number is still very high, but 
the number of new apartment starts is the smallest that I have seen it as far back as I have data for. And what's interesting, what's happening is because of the rise in interest rates, that's putting a break on a lot of developments because a lot of developments are no longer cash flowing. And but we still have this 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 uh, a lot of buildings under development. And so what you'll see is the next year or two, still a lot of development, but you're going to see a wall in about a year or two because the starts are just not happening now. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Okay. I would like to shift the conversation a little bit because we got off running so quickly <laughs> with this. Um, I couldn't help myself. I, I, I had to learn more quickly. Um, but talk to me a little bit about your background and what led you to ultimately become you know, CEO at Norhart with this giant umbrella of properties under your guys' arm? And is this something that you have been working towards for your career? Or talk to me a little bit about how this, this came about for you guys. Yeah. You know, my, uh, my parents originally started the business. It was very small at the time. We were only building uh, maybe eight units or so per year. And I can remember going on family uh, outings where we would go to the uh, local hardware store about half an hour away, and each one of us would fill up two carts full of building supplies, stuff into my dad's little trailer, and we'd race on off home. I don't know if that was entirely legal, but that was what we did. And uh, so the summers, we'd be building these buildings, and the winters, I'd be in school. And then by the time I went off to college, I knew for sure that I wanted nothing to do with the family business. I went off to school for computer science, mathematics, management, among other things. And... The reason I really wanted nothing to do with it is because I didn't want people to think it was given to me. Right. And it was a degree of pride in myself, I think, at that time. And what I started to realize at that point in my life, I was graduating around 2008, 2009, that whole crisis going on. But what I realized internally is that what I really wanted to do was to make some kind of meaningful, positive impact on the world. Once I started to realize that, I realized we could use this business as a starting point to make that meaningful impact, which has become about solving America's housing affordability crisis. So I worked past my own ego on all of that and joined with my dad. We, uh, we grew the business for the few years that we were working together. And then um, you know, one day uh, we lost him and just passed away, right? It was sudden, unexpected. We, weren't, we had no idea it was coming and uh, uh, we lost him. And so overnight I was running this business and looking back, really didn't know what I was doing. Right? How, but, how, how old were you at that uh, time? 25, 24, 25. Uh, and, uh, but, but looking back, I think that was the magic. I think that's what we really needed because sometimes ignorance is actually an asset because you don't know what you don't know. You don't know the way things are supposed to be done and you can try new things, right? There's no one to tell us no. And so we did that. We experimented. We tried new things and made some major failures. I have a lot of scars all over because of it. And maybe looking back, now that I know how hard it was, uh, maybe, I, maybe I would have checked it out. <laughs> Not knowing how painful it would be actually helped us be a little bit braver than maybe it was warranted. And that set us on this journey to start transforming this industry. Wow. That's, that's certainly an extraordinary story. And thank you for, for your willingness to, to share what you did. Um, you know, our conversation is is particularly timely for me. I'm I'm in the process of, hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, closing on my first multifamily property as we speak. Actually, awesome. uh, in in the state of Wisconsin, so not too too far from you. Yeah. And I this is something I've wanted to do for several years now. And for me, like the process of just getting that engine started mm. and understanding how to start and the things that I needed and the types of people 
that I needed to to find to build that team was not an easy process. And yeah. so it's important for people to realize as you share that story and as I allude to mine, like this this is a, a, a journey and a marathon. This is not a race. And you know, you talked about how many, you know, buildings and and units you guys have under your umbrella at Norhart. This is something that is a decades long process. And so I'm curious how your perspective has changed, I suppose, um, dating back from those early days that you described all the way to, to now. It's really interesting because the strategies change a lot. At a small scale, uh, one of my things I'd recommend is just to be scrappy, kind of like you're doing right now. You know? uh, and you can save a lot of costs by really getting involved in a lot of the details yourself, and you're learning a lot through that process. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, as you start to scale up, that doesn't work anymore. Uh, there's only one of you, and if you get to be you know, thousands of units and hundreds of people uh, or hundreds of employees, it just doesn't work. And so it's a very different strategy at that stage. And I think the most important thing at the, at the mid and later stages is to recognize that you need to hire the very best. Mm. Uh, and when I say very best, I truly mean that. We fly people in from other states to come work during the week, and we fly them home on the weekend. Right? We, uh, our recruiting team is 14 people out of a company of about 250 which is a tremendous amount of recruiters. And they put a ton of time. We go through tens of thousands of people before selecting people to be on our team. And even then, the, the ratio of people who actually make it through long-term uh, is fairly small because we want the very best. Yeah. But, when, but when you get that caliber of person, they unlock things. They make things possible that you didn't even know would be possible. That's when we went from growing at maybe 15 or 20% per year to doubling in size every year is when you have that caliber of person. You know, a lot of people think that the expensive people are, or the, the, the top people are expensive. And yes, I mean, on a per person basis, they are. You have to pay them quite handsomely to get them. But what most people fail to understand, and I certainly did when I was younger, is that the best people outperform the average by two to five to 10 times as much. And so when you look at it, a cost per production, they're actually the most inexpensive people you can hire. And they also change the game. And so if you want to change your world, find the very best yeah this idea of activating your team in order to capture outsized return in terms of the enterprise itself but also i think something that extends through to the the customer's experience because they're going to be obviously communicating and dealing with your team when it comes to customer service and questions and and all those good things um what is your process or perspective when it comes to hiring specifically, are there certain types of people that you look for? For example, people that have experience in real estate or property management or investing, and what does that onboarding um, process entail? Yeah, so I think I heard on one of your podcasts talking about values, and I could not agree more how foundational that is. So we, we have it well laid out. What is our purpose? What is our mission? What are our values? What are our strategies, goals, habits, and beliefs? This is our whole like chain of things. The values describe who we are, and that's how we measure people. Um, and for every person we look to hire, there's a whole part of the interview process that looks only at values, nothing to do with skills. Are you the kind of person that will fit in well with this organization? And our values are specific enough to help spread the field between someone who works well at another company versus here. Um, so that's a key part. Another key part for us is that we want to be best in the world at what we do. That's literally the aim. 
I mean, you think like Elon Musk with SpaceX going to Mars, like that kind of level. You think Tom Brady or Michael Jordan, like literally best in the world. And if we're going to be that way as a company, we need people who are on that journey to be best in the world as well. And so another metric for us is not, you don't have to be best in the world today at your niche or what you're doing, but you have to be the kind of person that's on that journey, has that drive, that energy, the willingness to learn and grow to become literally best in the world. Like imagine every single employee of ours going off and speaking at conferences because they're best in the world at concrete or maybe steel fabrication or welding, right? That kind of level uh, is another key metric for us. Uh, and then when we do hire them on, uh, many people are only offered a trial period. It depends on the position. But for a trial period, it, you're still not officially hired. You come on for maybe two or three weeks. At the end of that period, your coworkers will evaluate you. And guess what? They're pulling up those values. Every single one of them, they evaluate and say, does this person meet this? And are you a hell yeah? Are you truly best, fighting to be best in the world? Um, and they decide whether or not you're on the team or not on the team. You know, for a lot of companies, uh, if you think about the spread of employees, you have one end of the bad ones, and most companies know to get rid of the bad ones. And the other end are the great ones, the truly world changers. Every company wants to keep those people. But for most companies, and I've seen this over and over again, I've seen it for myself, they are okay with the average. And that is just not, not what we want to be. We eliminate. We're not okay with the average. And I have seen what that does to teams when you have a team of truly elite. It is amazing. Amazing. I, I, uh, I've seen it. And so I fight for that for all of our different groups. And so, um, yeah, that's uh, what we evaluate for and we look for in our teams. In terms of your personal leadership style and I suppose also your general day-to-day -day in terms of management of the business as CEO, kind of walk me through how you look at your role in interfacing with the business and with the multiple teams um, that make it work. Yeah. Um... This has evolved with time. So early on, it was very much get in the dirt. I mean, I would literally be in my nice clothes in the mud <laughs> looking for water leaks and water mains and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I would be in their programming. We, we built out a whole ISP, an internet service provider for our residents, and we'd be involved in the programming, helping the team along. I would get into whatever the biggest issues were in the company. There's still a part of me that is very much that way, but I've, I've learned that at my stage now, I have to step back and I'm more massaging the overall enterprise. And so it's about making clear to people what's important to me, the follow through and checking on what those important things are. Uh, I'm working on raising up a COO who's really managing the business. And then I'm going to focus on uh, moving certain elements forward, sort of that visionary versus integrator approach. I'm also getting a little bit more in the public world, right? So uh, an NPR on... Um, CBS, uh, Wall Street Journal, that sort of thing right now. Because uh, I'm realizing that it's great to have a high-functioning business, but unless people are aware of what you're doing, you can't really reach your full potential. And that awareness, that attention, they're, they're, there's value to that. It's almost a currency like you have dollars. And so me and my position, I have to be, to a degree, the face of that to build that currency up, and that's another piece that we're working on today. You know, it's interesting, as, you, as you've been speaking, something that popped into my mind is Richard Branson's Virgin mm -hmm. brand. And I was recently in Vegas and I, I was walking past the hotel there, which I believe is fairly new. I think it was built maybe a few years ago. Resorts World? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. It, oh, okay. it is Virgin Hotel. Oh, it's Virgin Hotels. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah. And 
I, I don't know how many other locations there are across the country, but the first thing that struck me there is as soon as I saw it, I was like, this is, this is the Virgin brand be, mm. because of the red and the white and the, the, the sign obviously uh, with that brand, but you recognize that. And I'm wondering if for you guys with, with growing that Norhart brand, as you just mentioned, is your ultimate goal to kind of have that nationwide awareness and that mind share among renters that, Hey, I actually want to stay. I want, I want to seek out and stay out in Norhart owned uh, apartment or complex. Exactly. You're exactly right. Wow. And uh, if you look at our, uh, obviously I don't have renderings and things in front of you right now, but if you looked at those right now of our latest designs that we're working on, it is all <laughs> about that. It's how do you, you drive by the building and you just immediately know that's a Norhart building. You right. get into the building and you have that experience. It's consistent throughout. It's really top notch. And so, yeah, for sure. We're definitely working on that. How big of a deal is it in terms of growing the business and scaling from the local area more nationwide? How big a deal is referrals and reviews of your existing renters? Is that something that you guys are thinking about and focusing on? We are, but I, that's sort of like stage three. What I really think about is getting the employee experience right. Okay. You know, finding the best people and, and making sure their experience with the Norhart is fantastic. I used to think more about the customer experience first, and I realized if you get the employee experience right, that bleeds into the customer experience because your customer experience primarily is interaction with your staff. And then if you get that right, then that naturally bleeds into referrals. So if you start with referrals, like you start asking people for referrals, you don't get very far. If you start with making an incredible experience for your employees, things start happening pretty naturally. Yeah, it should take care of itself if everything's great up to yeah. that point. Uh, I think, well, I, I want to zoom back out again uh, and, and just talk, I guess, from a macro perspective, um, not to put you on the spot with this question, but what is maybe one thing that you are excited about or that you're seeing evolve in real estate in general or multifamily? And then conversely, one thing that you are being particularly cautious about as you look to scale and acquire new properties? Yeah, the biggest thing I'm excited about is we are seeing in a meaningful way cost reduction of construction, at least within our control. But there are other companies that are doing elements of that that are really cool to see as well, which excites me because I think we're going to have a meaningful impact on housing affordability in a way we haven't seen in the past few decades. So that's the exciting side. The negative side is interest rates. So interest rates have risen over the past year or so. And as a result of that, banks have become more skittish. And so they're offering smaller loans than they did before. And this is why we're seeing multifamily starts dropping off. And it's impacted us as well. So back to that $100 million building, they used to fund $75 million. Now they might be funding $65 or $60 million. So now we're having to bring capital to the table in a way we haven't had before. Now it still works for us because we're profitable, but it's a new dynamic. And so it's forced us to make some changes in a good way and that we're launching a new investment platform uh, to give people access into earning uh, income for themselves. In some ways, we're replacing the banks right now. And so that's actually been a lot of fun. We've been going through, uh, we're just about done now, the full SEC review because we're doing a sort of a mini IPO, which is the more extreme version. Most of the time, real estate investments are, you can't invest in real estate because you need to be an accredited investor. You gotta have a million dollars in the assets, excluding your home or $200,000 in income, that just excludes most people. So now we're going down this route of creating a way that every investor can actually get involved 
But that requires a lot more of us as a company, audits and lots of legal expenses, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but uh, it's made us better as a company. So in sum, the rising interest rate scares me, but it also excites me because it pushes us and it molds us to be even better than we were before. So with, with the rising rates and the need to bring more capital to the table, does that change your approach in terms of the, the properties that you decide to build, uh, whether in you know how big they are, number of units, location, so on and so forth, or would you still be doing the same thing even if rates were at their ideal level and maybe just growing a tiny bit quicker? Or how is that kind of affecting your, your rate of scale? It really hasn't changed things too much. Okay. But the reason that is is because we pivoted on the capital raising side. If we hadn't, then instead of more or less doubling every year, we would be growing at maybe 5 or 10%, right? It would just slow down growth because we wouldn't have the capital to expand at the rate we had been. Yeah. Yep. Got it. Got it. Awesome. Mike, that is all the questions that I have for you. I guess where <clears throat> I would like to kind of wrap up this conversation is one or two things that you want to share with our listeners about getting started in either real estate or their business development or investment journey? What are kind of just a couple of tips that, that you want to leave people with? Yeah, so I'll start with a couple of really practical, but then I'll talk about probably the most important one. Um, so really practical is simply start small, right? Go look at buying a house and renting it out. Yeah. Be scrappy, get in there, be the one cleaning the toilets and uh, uh, turning over the unit, which I've done many times over. <laughs> Learn how to install trim and doors and all that fun stuff. Um, but through that process, even though it seems a little monotonous, you're learning. And that learning is going to equip you well as you start to scale up. Because uh, yeah. you'll know when people are pulling your leg and how long things should take and stuff like that. If you do one house, you rent it out, and then you grow that to maybe two houses and three houses, and then build a, uh, get a small apartment building and grow that beyond. I've seen many people do that very successfully. The kind of bigger, more important point is that anytime we start something new, we're terrible at it. And that's okay. That's normal. That's the way humans were built, right? You start off walking, or you don't start off walking. You struggle with walking. You can't even talk. You don't know how to do basic math. You don't even know one plus one equals two, right? And as a kid, we're okay with that. We're okay with the fact we don't know. We keep trying new things and learning. Well, what's yeah. interesting is you start to get older, people tend to be more reserved to try new things, right? They think that if they do something new, that new thing should be really good. But that's not the case. You know, I was talking to a prominent podcast, or no, it was a YouTuber, a large YouTuber, and he was talking about, uh, I asked him, like, how did you do this? How did you grow to be so large and do such a good job? He said, honestly, the biggest thing that separates me from most other people wanting to get to my level is that I hit record. Right? So many people dream about maybe getting into real estate. But until you buy that first house, you're just on the sidelines. And so the big thing to do is to take that first step. And there's always something that you can do. I think one of the biggest fallacies that I see and that I probably had myself looking back at the very beginning is that you need to know everything before you can do anything. And mm. that is simply not true. So wrong. <laughs> you can buy a book. You can find a mentor. I started with Airbnb before I you know, made an offer on my first property. And so it starts small and it builds over time with compounding. So. Exactly. That's so true. Very important. Um, Mike, this is this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to connect with you and to learn more about any educational content that you guys are putting out or to find Nordhart? 
Yeah, you can visit our website. It's norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com. There you can learn more about that new investment platform that we'll be launching shortly. And then the other kind of educational thing is we're launching a brand new podcast. It's about the journey of small companies growing to billion dollar enterprises and what that journey is truly like, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so take a look at our website. You can click on podcast to learn more about that as well. Awesome. I can't wait to check that out. Yeah, it should be fun. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mike. This has been great. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review as everything helps. I'm working to spread these insights to as many people as I possibly can. You can connect with me on Instagram at workwithmichael. Feel free to shoot me a message or check out my link tree for more resources. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. My book, Content Capitalist, is on sale now. Grab your copy by visiting my website or tapping the link in the episode description. I also just released the online learning portal, which expands on what I share in the book. This includes four hours of edited, captioned video tutorials and trainings, plus dozens of downloadables and templates. Between the book and the e-academy, you're going to be equipped to literally blow your revenue targets out of the water and eviscerate your competition this year, all by putting content at the core. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate, review, comment, and share all the things and hit me up on LinkedIn if you'd like to connect. I am here to serve you and that's it. I will see you in the next episode.